Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, how about an apology for the priesthood ban? But before we get to the meat of tonight's podcast, I have an important announcement to make. On Sunday, January 12th, of 2020. That will be this upcoming Sunday. I will be flying to St. George, Utah to make a presentation there to the post-Mormon group that meets on a monthly basis. This month, January 12th, at the Red Lion Inn, I will be making a presentation starting at 2 o'clock p.m. If you happen to be in the area, please come and join us. It should be a fun time. In this presentation, I hope to finally make good on a promise that I have been making for some time now, which is that I want to address how it is that I reconcile the spiritual experiences I have had as a member of the church with where I am now. Put another way, how does somebody like me, who has had some really remarkable spiritual experiences related to Mormonism, end up becoming Radio Free Mormon? I think it will be an interesting presentation, and I am working hard to make it worth the while of everybody who will be in attendance. Once again, I hope that you can make it there. It is at the Red Lion Inn, 2 o'clock p.m. Sunday, January 12, 2020. See you there. And now, on to tonight's presentation, how about an apology for the priesthood ban? Six years ago, in December of 2013, the church released an essay on its official website dealing with race and the priesthood, which effectively is an apology for the priesthood and temple ban that the church placed upon black members for over 100 years. Unfortunately, when I say an apology, I mean apology in the classical sense, i.e. it is a defense for that position. It is not an apology in the more common vernacular of being an apology, saying I'm sorry, saying we're sorry, saying we did something wrong when we excluded members from the priesthood and also from the temple based on nothing other than their race. Shortly after that essay came out on the church website in December of 2013, I wrote a piece regarding that essay and put it up on my blog. And what I want to do tonight is to revisit that essay since the church has not seen fit in the intervening six years to actually issue an apology, a real apology, for the priesthood ban, I want to revisit that blog piece that I wrote six years ago this evening in hopes that the Strengthening Church Members Committee, who regularly monitors this podcast, will get the message, perhaps send it along to the upper leaders of the church, and maybe we'll get some action on this front. It's not too much to hope for, is it? But before I get to that opinion piece that I wrote six years ago, I want to talk about a special listener to this podcast. This is a listener who is across the waves, across the Pacific Ocean, in fact, and is located somewhere in Southeast Asia. More than that, I do not want to give any information on because this particular listener wishes to remain anonymous at present, and I will certainly respect that desire by this listener to remain anonymous. I can certainly understand where it comes from. And once again, we have to understand that in this church, when you do not fit in, when you question the prophetic credentials of the leadership of the church, when you begin to have doubts about the fundamental truth claims of the LDS church, it is frequently desirable to remain anonymous. Because if the church finds out who you are and what you really think, bad things can follow. But this particular listener has sent me a number of postcards from across the waves, and I want to give a public thank you for these wonderful postcards. One of them 
sent last November, says this, RFM, very much looking forward to hearing all of the MSP interviews. I think that stands for Mormon Stories. It died at 28 minutes. Very much appreciate your perspective and articulation. Keep on keeping on. Cheers. And this is signed by this listener and dated 14 November 2019. I also received another postcard from this listener with a beautiful picture of Mr. Spock from the old TV show, Star Trek. I suppose I don't really have to explain who Mr. Spock is. But on the back it says, Radio Free Mormon, live long and prosper! Exclamation point. Thank you for that postcard as well. And there are other postcards that I had received earlier from this particular listener, which are posted with pride on the wall of my underground bunker. Most recently, I received a full letter from this listener, and I want to quote from some excerpts from this letter on this podcast, and I will do so now. I'm going to edit and cut around certain parts of the letter, which may give too much information, which could make it possible to allow those who listen from the Strengthening Church Members Committee to identify this particular listener, which I do not want to have happen. It appears this letter was written after this listener was able to listen to all of the John DeLynn interviews that I did back in November of 2019. It states as follows, Yesterday, I finished watching your six to seven hour interview with John DeLynn. I was thoroughly glued to the screen. This letter was compelled by hearing and watching you share your thoughts about your journey and your insights. The letter goes on to state, Your story connected to me on many, many levels. Isn't it interesting how different aspects of a person's story have important meaning to some while other parts don't? Nevertheless, thank you for taking time to sit through the interview, answer questions, and elaborate on your story, even though there are many parts we don't yet know, the messy stuff. I'm approaching three years into my truth-faith crisis. It's complicated. First, seeing you on video was important. I'm glad he thinks it's important, by the way, because I have long thought that I have a face for radio, but for this listener, seeing me on video was important. He goes on, you mentioned the issue of humor and how you use it, that it's sort of a mask. You mentioned how people have masks. That is so true. My mask is sarcasm and a quiet smile and calm demeanor. Mormonism taught me and my family to avoid conflict at all costs. Conflict avoidance can perpetuate stagnation and indecision the hallmarks of my life. He goes on, I loved hearing you mention the impact that great literature has had on you. This really resonated with me because until two plus years ago, most art and literature was seen through the lens of Mormonism. And my God, I missed so much. I was exposed to musical and visual arts my whole life. I love the arts, but honestly, Mormonism shielded me from really understanding and experiencing them more fully. Can I break in here and share a thought and a memory that this comment brings up to me? I remember being at the University of Texas at Austin one day and wandering about the campus and seeing the different buildings where different schools of thought were taught. And one of those buildings was the School of Philosophy. And on the outside of this beautiful building were the names and busts of different philosophers, famous philosophers throughout the ages, philosophers whose names I recognized, well, at least some of them I recognized, like Socrates. Many of them I did not recognize because my knowledge of philosophy at the time was basically nil. Now I have a little knowledge, but certainly not encyclopedic in that incredibly interesting and fascinating 
area of human thought. But I remember walking around this building and looking up at all those busts and thinking how silly it is for men to think that they can arrive at the knowledge of truth about God simply by thinking about things and trying to figure things out on their own. Unless God reveals himself to man, God must remain forever unknown. This was my thought at the time as a TBM. And I think it illustrates the arrogance that Mormonism can teach its members. I'm not saying that all of its members are arrogant or prideful. I'm just saying this was a particular manifestation of it in my life, which I now identify as being incredibly arrogant, that I am somehow smarter than the great philosophers of history only because I'm a member of the LDS Church and I know what God has actually revealed to his living apostles and prophets upon the face of the earth. And that puts me over and above Socrates and all the great philosophers of human history. The letter goes on, along with the obsessive research into real Mormon history the past three years, I've explored many things that I totally missed. I recently went through a philosophy class. I was embarrassed that I had never been exposed to basic ideas of philosophy outside of Mormonism. For crying out loud, I was involved and cultured growing up, yet my view was so narrowed. And by the way, he puts cultured in quotation marks. So it is possible to be exposed to philosophy, to be exposed to art, to be exposed to literature while you are a member of Mormonism and yet have it filtered so much through Mormonism as to almost completely and totally miss the impact and the mark of what it is that the literature, the art, and the philosophy is trying to tell you. The highlights of your story to me were these. Number one, a guy who loved dance and drama and become a lawyer? Wow. Two, wholehearted consumption of Mormon scholarship in producing and publishing your own. You were dedicated. Three, nerdy insights and opinions about comics and other nerdy things. That's two nerdies in one sentence, by the way. I just want to comment on that. I don't know that I can completely agree with both <laughs> with, with that um, description of me, but it seems to be one that's growing in popularity. Number four, the box of Mormonism. J.H.C., which I think are the initials of a general authority. J.H.C., this box stifled my growth. It wasn't until I realized this that I woke up to the new reality. For what it's worth, Tom Phillips' story broke my shelf. Number five, praise of Bill Reel, a carpet salesman turned pawn shop manager who never went to college, who could and would cream a Chicago law grad in a debate. I went to meet Bill last April at his shop, one of the highlights of a U.S. trip when I also met John Larson for an hour of unloading. Number six, your explanation of how the creation of Mormon doctrine is now observable in real time, smoke and mirrors. And finally, number seven, explaining how evidence is important to critical thinking and coming to reasoned conclusions that you believe XYZ based on evidence, not on what people say. He then shares a number of other insights that he has learned, which I'm not going to read on the air because they would give clues as to who he is. However, I will go to the end of his letter and read the conclusion. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I mainly wanted to write and say thanks for sharing your story and being vulnerable. And he puts vulnerable in quotation marks. I am approaching a breaking point where I can no longer keep my mask on. And I'm looking for a way to make a safe landing, which may be its own fallacy. To conclude, postcards are my inner nerd. Hell's bells, I actually sent you a real letter with stamps in 2019. I believe that this is the letter to which he refers. I also like cottage artists who make postcards. The enclosed postcard is by a local pop artist. I hope Spock will touch your inner nerd 
period, all the best. And that ends this letter. So I want to give this special listener across the waves a shout out. Thank you for the postcards. And yes, the postcard featuring Spock did touch my inner nerd. And if the quest for truth and logic is nerdy, then I am a nerd. I will wear that appellation as a badge of honor. Now I want to turn to the piece I wrote six years ago about the church essay dealing with blacks and the priesthood. I published this in December of 2013, so it was the same month as the essay came out that I published this piece, and I was very gratified to see that it went viral. It started racking up views on a massive scale, at least massive in my experience, of thousands and thousands, even before that night was over, that night on which it was published. And here it is. It was published on December 18th of 2013, and it begins as follows. Observant Mormons are urged to speak no ill of the Lord's anointed, which is generally understood to be the leadership of the church. Elder Dallin H. Oaks expanded on this in the February 1987 Enzyme, where he taught that Latter-day Saints should not criticize church leaders, adding, it does not matter that the criticism is true. Elder Oaks repeated this sentiment in a 2007 PBS interview, saying that it's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. In order to avoid criticizing church leaders, Mormons have historically engaged in a pattern of blaming anyone and everyone possible for actions of church leaders, except for the leaders themselves. A classic instance of this phenomenon is the church's ban on allowing black men to hold the priesthood and its ban on allowing black men and women to enter the temple. In spite of an important essay released by the LDS Church on Friday, December 6th, 2013, this pattern continues. The first step was to blame an ancient miscreant named Cain for the problem, i.e. the problem about the priesthood ban. The argument ran that Cain committed a sin so grievous that all his posterity was cursed with the skin of blackness so as to mark his descendants as not worthy of the priesthood. That's priesthood with a capital P. Largely ignored was the fact this argument seemed to run headlong into an article of faith that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. If we are not punished for Adam's transgression, why should we be punished for Cain's? The next step was to blame the black people themselves for the priesthood ban. This was accomplished by creating from whole cloth the theory that blacks were denied the priesthood and temple ordinances in this life due to their not being valiant in the pre-mortal war in heaven. This story blames the victims for the ban and was apparently considered so significant that it was advanced without one scrap of revelation to support it. Perhaps this should not be surprising, as the same could be said for the priesthood ban itself. It is heartening, I add parenthetically, it is heartening that the recent race and the priesthood essay explicitly disavows both teachings of the curse of Cain and the pre-mortal fence-sitters. Another tack appears to be taken in the church's new race and the priesthood essay, that of blaming all non-members of the church for their role in creating a racist culture into which church leaders were born and who imbibed with their mother's milk the racist attitudes of the surrounding civilization. So we've gone from blaming Cain, i.e. one individual for the priesthood ban, to blaming all the black people for the priesthood ban. Now we're blaming all the non-Mormons for the priesthood ban, and so it will continue. Here's a quote from the essay. 
The church was established in 1830 during an era of great racial division in the United States. At the time, many people of African descent lived in slavery, and racial distinctions and prejudice were not just common, but customary among white Americans. Those realities, though unfamiliar and disturbing today, influenced all aspects of people's lives, including their religion, period, end of quote from the essay. Church leaders, it is thereby suggested, are not to be blamed for racist attitudes that were not of their own making, and which they could not prevent absorbing from the non-member racist culture in which they were raised. A new argument that appears to be gaining currency is to blame the church members themselves for the priesthood ban. The members responsible must be distinguished from church leaders so as to avoid speaking evil of the Lord's anointed. This argument is recognizable by the language that the members of the church, quote, were not ready, unquote, for the priesthood ban to be lifted until 1978. An example of this argument was advanced in the second half of the recent Radio West broadcast linked to below. So there's a link there to a recent Radio West broadcast. It's not in the essay, but it was in that broadcast. Apparently, the racist attitudes of LDS church members were so universally and firmly entrenched that allowing blacks the priesthood any earlier than 1978 would have resulted in mass disaffection and ultimate church dissolution. And finally, we get to the excuse of, we just don't know. It has also become fashionable to respond to the query of why the LDS Church banned blacks from the priesthood with a simple, we just don't know. An example of this can be found in Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's 2007 PBS interview. But as observed by Marvin Perkins in a recent Radio West broadcast, saying we don't know is equivalent to blaming God for the priesthood ban. Saying we don't know when we don't know something is the appropriate response. I need to add that here. But saying we don't know while simultaneously averring the church is led by direct and continuous revelation to church leaders effectively shifts responsibility away from church leaders and toward God. Let me break in here to this piece I wrote in December of 2013 to add the fact that at the B1 celebration in June of 2018, Elder Dallin H. Oaks doubled down on the idea that God is the one behind the priesthood ban. He did not understand why it was that God would do this. He could not come up with a good answer for why it is that God would do this. Elder Oaks even said that he could not receive a spiritual confirmation of the different theories that were put forth as to why God would do this, so it remains forever unknown, and yet he doubled down on the fact that this was God speaking to his prophets, and his job was not to understand why, but simply to follow what the prophets said. There's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Why was the revelation on the priesthood such an occasion of joy? As a young man in the legal profession, I lived in the Midwest and the East for 17 years. The restriction on the ordination and temple blessings of persons of African ancestry, almost invisible to me as I grew up in Utah, was a frequent subject of my conversations in my life in Chicago and Washington, D.C. I observed the pain and frustration experienced by those who suffered these restrictions and those who criticized the restrictions and sought for reasons. I studied the reasons then being given 
and could not feel confirmation of the truth of any of them. As part of my prayerful study, I learned that, in general, the Lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions He gives to His servants. I determined to be loyal to our prophetic leaders and to pray, as promised from the beginning of these restrictions, that the day would come when all would enjoy the blessings of priesthood and temple. Now that day had come, and I wept for joy. Going back to the 2013 article that I wrote, this position of just saying we don't know why it is that God promoted and instituted and perpetuated the priesthood ban, this position was reflected as early as the 1969 First Presidency Statement on the subject, which states that Negroes are, quote, not yet to receive the priesthood for reasons which we believe are known to God, but which he has not made fully known to man. Until God reveals his will in this matter, to him whom we sustain as a prophet, we are bound by that same will, period, end of quote from the 1969 First Presidency Statement. I go on. It should be noted parenthetically that though the new essay correctly identifies Brigham Young as the church leader who first publicly announced the priesthood ban in 1852, the suggestion remains that it was done at God's direction, by the inclusion of the story that, quote, after praying for guidance, President McKay did not feel impressed to lift the ban. If God wasn't behind the ban, why didn't he just tell his prophet when asked? That's the question which is raised by the essay, but not answered. Next, I ask the question, who is missing from the blame game? We've shown how over the course of history, the LDS Church has blamed Cain for the priesthood ban. We've seen how the LDS Church has blamed the black people for the priesthood ban. We've seen how the LDS Church has blamed the white non-Mormons for the priesthood ban. And we've seen how the LDS Church has blamed the Mormons themselves for the priesthood ban. Who is missing now is the question I asked. Who is missing from the blame game? Mormons appear to be so constitutionally averse to criticizing their leaders that they are willing to place responsibility for the priesthood ban on anybody and everybody in the world and out of the world in the case of God. Oh, that's the other person I forgot who we blame for the priesthood ban is God himself or out of the world in the case of God rather than state the simple and obvious truth that the church leaders who instituted and perpetuated the priesthood ban for over 125 years are the ones responsible for, wait for it, the institution and perpetuation of the priesthood ban for over 125 years. Yes, it's that simple. This reluctance to even discuss the historical facts relating to the ban and when discussed to avoid laying responsibility for the priesthood ban at the feet of church leaders may account for a number of interesting aspects of the church's new race and the priesthood essay. Next, I go over several clues in the essay. Is this why the new essay was released on a Friday, the day of the week unanimously agreed upon by Democrats and Republicans alike as the optimum time to put forward damaging information? Is this why the new essay was not broached in general conference? Although we can see in retrospect that Elder Uchtdorf was likely preparing the soil for release of this new essay when he said last October, quote, And to be perfectly frank, there have been times when members or leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. There may have been things said or done that were not in harmony with our values, principles, and doctrine. 
Many people remember that quote from former President Elder Uchtdorf, but it's significant historically that that quote was said in October 2013 General Conference immediately or at least two months prior to the release of this particular essay on race and the priesthood by the church in December of 2013. I go on. Is this why the new essay was apparently not accompanied by a press release or sent out to every bishop to be read over the pulpit in all congregations throughout the church? Is this why the new essay was not signed and why nobody in current church leadership is associated by name in any way with it. And once again, I'm going over clues in the essay, related to the essay, and the circumstances under which it was published to see if we can pick up some clues as to why it was done in this way and in this manner relating to the avoidance of church membership and church leaders to lay blame for the priesthood ban where it obviously belongs on the church leaders themselves. Going on with these clues, is this why the new essay is not displayed on the homepage of the LDS Church website, but is instead buried three clicks deep? And then I include in parentheses, first click from the homepage is teachings, second click is gospel topics, third click is race and the priesthood. The homepage, at the time that I wrote this piece in December of 2013, the homepage instead displays such presumably more important subjects as Christmas lights on Temple Square, following the Christmas devotional on social media, and how to download Christmas wallpaper. And that's from the LDS Church homepage, accessed December 14th, 2013. Those were the items, those were the messages, those were the news stories that dominated the front page of the website when, if you wanted to read what the church had just released on their essay, you had to go three clicks deep and you had to learn about its existence from someplace other than the church because the church was not announcing it. More questions ensue in this piece. Is this why the essay buries in footnote 13 its one example of a church leader writing that the belief was, quote, quite general among Mormons that, quote, the Negro race has been cursed for taking a neutral position in that great contest, end of quote. Is this why this lone instance cites to personal correspondence by Joseph Fielding Smith, pointedly designated as apostle instead of president, which he later became, in which he mentions the fence-sitting teaching, but hastens to add it is not the official position of the church and is merely the opinion of men. So in other words, in footnote 13 of this essay, they reference a letter written by Joseph Fielding Smith when he was an apostle, which poo-poos the theory of blacks being fence-sitters in heaven, and that's why they were cursed as to the priesthood. The questions continue. Is this why this one example comes from an obscure and unpublished piece of personal correspondence rather than more easily accessed and published sources such as Joseph Fielding Smith's The Way to Perfection, Doctrines of Salvation, or Answers to Gospel Questions? In other words, the essay wants to quote from a piece of personal correspondence by Joseph Fielding Smith in which he states that the idea that blacks were fence-sitters in heaven, which is common among the members of the church, is not something that is the doctrine of the church. They want to go to a personal piece of correspondence by Joseph Fielding Smith for that point, but they neglect all the freaking books he wrote where he talked about this very issue. And the deal with Joseph Fielding Smith is not that he did not believe in the priesthood ban. It's not that he did not believe it was from God. It's not that he did not believe that there were actions by people in the pre-mortal existence that resulted in their being born black and therefore marked as being restricted from the priesthood. No, this is much more finely tuned than that. His position 
is that the idea that blacks were fence sitters in heaven is incorrect. He believed that there were no fence sitters in heaven, so blacks could not have been fence sitters in heaven. His idea is that blacks affirmatively committed some sin or wrongful act, otherwise unspecified, in the pre-mortal existence during the war in heaven that caused them to be born through a black lineage and thereby marked as being restricted from the priesthood. Let's go to my footnote one on this issue. Joseph Fielding Smith's objection to the teaching about the priesthood ban or the teaching that it was caused by blacks being fence-sitters in heaven appears to have been restricted to the idea that pre-mortal blacks were neutral. As he later wrote, quote, There were no neutrals in the war in heaven. All took sides, either with Christ or with Satan. Every man had his agency there, and men receive rewards here based upon their actions there, just as they will receive rewards hereafter for deeds done in the body. The Negro, I'm continuing to quote Joseph Fielding Smith from his book, Doctrines of Salvation, Volume 1, pages 66 through 67, the Negro evidently is receiving the reward he merits, period, end of quote. In other words, Joseph Fielding Smith believed that blacks were prevented from receiving the priesthood due to unspecified transgressions in the pre-mortal existence. His only quibble was with the idea that they had been neutral. I then add, it appears that footnote 13 in the new essay may have been manipulated in such a way as to convey a different impression to the casual reader. One cannot help noticing that three quotes are spliced together and that Joseph Fielding Smith's private correspondence is not widely available to other than church historians for purposes of comparison, located as it is in the church history library. So this was one aspect of this essay that I found very interesting, that they want to give the impression that a church leader, Joseph Fielding Smith, stated that the fence-sitter theory was not the doctrine of the church, even though it was commonly understood among the members of the church, while completely omitting the fact that Joseph Fielding Smith nevertheless believed that the blacks had done something wrong in the pre-mortal existence that caused them to be born black, and that was the cause and the source and the theory behind the priesthood ban. Sometimes telling half the truth is better than telling a lie. In footnote two of my piece, Joseph Fielding Smith makes this clear in his Answers to Gospel Questions, volume two. Here's what he writes there. He refers the reader to another of his books called The Way to Perfection, where he writes, Kindly see chapters 15 and 16 in The Way to Perfection for further light in relation to the reason why the Negro cannot receive the priesthood. In brief, it is as follows. So now here's Joseph Fielding Smith setting forth his own position as to why blacks cannot receive the priesthood. Because of transgressions in the first estate, which deprives him in this second estate. Since Cain slew his brother Abel in order to obtain all the rights of priesthood to descend through his lineage, the Lord decreed that the children of Cain should not have the privilege of bearing the priesthood until Abel had posterity who could have the priesthood and that will have to be in the far distant future. That's what Joseph Fielding Smith is writing in the 1950s. That will have to be in the far distant future when this is accomplished, i.e., when all of Abel's descendants have had the chance to receive the priesthood, when this is accomplished on some other world. Wow, so Joseph Fielding Smith isn't saying it just happens to happen on this world. It may have to happen on some other world. I'm not sure what he means by that, but that's what he wrote. When this is accomplished on some other world, then the restrictions will be removed from the children of Cain who have been true in this second estate. Period. End of quote from Joseph Fielding Smith. So I think it's pretty obvious what Joseph Fielding Smith's position was, that every white person was going to have to have the chance to receive 
the priesthood, not only on this world, but apparently even on some other world. Only then would blacks have the chance to receive the priesthood. And I think that that makes it pretty clear why it was that Joseph Fielding Smith had to die before that ban could be lifted. Joseph Fielding Smith, of course, was president of the church from 1970 to 1972 when he passed away, and the priesthood ban was finally lifted then six years later after his demise in 1978. That is a step it looks like had no chance of being taken while Joseph Fielding Smith was still alive. Going back to the main body of this piece I wrote six years ago, one can only imagine the degree of document winnowing church historians engaged in to find this one-sided example from the 1907 personal correspondence of Apostle Joseph Fielding Smith. More germane and more accessible would be the 1949 First Presidency Statement in which the teaching that blacks are not allowed the priesthood is described not as a policy, but a doctrine. Quote, It is not a matter of the declaration of a policy, but of direct commandment from the Lord. This is the 1949 First Presidency Statement. It is not a matter of the declaration of a policy, but of direct commandment from the Lord, on which is founded the doctrine of the church from the days of its organization. Once again, they're trying to include Joseph Smith in this priesthood ban and say it originated with him, on which is founded the doctrine of the church from the days of its organization, to the effect that Negroes may become members of the church but that they are not entitled to the priesthood at the present time, period, end of quote from the 1949 First Presidency Statement. So in other words, the essay will quote a line or two from personal correspondence from 1907 from Joseph Fielding Smith, but they completely avoid the mention or quotation from the 1949 First Presidency Statement. This seems to be something other than an attempt to be transparent on the part of the church in writing and publishing this particular essay. Back to my article. In addition to inheriting the curse of Cain, misbehavior of blacks in pre-mortality is put forth as a rationale for the ban in the 1949 First Presidency Statement, so it appears there as well. Once again, we quote, Failure of the right to enjoy in mortality the blessings of the priesthood is a handicap which spirits are willing to assume in order that they might come to earth. Now, this is obviously talking about those spirits that came to earth in black bodies. Failure of the right to enjoy immortality, the blessings of the priesthood, is a handicap which spirits are willing to assume. So it's a willingly assumed handicap on the part of blacks in order that they might come to earth. Under this principle, there is no injustice whatsoever involved in this deprivation as to the holding of the priesthood by the Negroes, period, end of that quote from the 1949 First Presidency Statement. So, according to the 1949 First Presidency Statement, Negroes cannot hold the priesthood because they are literally getting what they asked for. Going on, the new essay, which seems to take pains to avoid labeling the priesthood ban as doctrine, contrasts with the 1949 First Presidency Statement declaring the priesthood ban as not policy but doctrine. Not only is the 1949 First Presidency Statement not mentioned in the new essay, it also appears to be missing from the church website. Additionally, the 1949 First Presidency Statement was signed by all three members of the First Presidency, highlighting the absence of any signatures appended to the new essay. Is this why the new essay frames Brigham Young's promise that one day blacks would be permitted the priesthood as being fulfilled by Spencer Kimball's 1978 
revelation. So once again, the essay plays the well-worn trick of quoting only part of Brigham Young's prophecy in which he says that blacks will not receive the priesthood until every other worthy member of the human race has had the opportunity to receive the priesthood. In other words, every white man has to have the opportunity to receive the priesthood, everyone that will be born into the earth up until the second coming of Christ and probably even thereafter before the blacks even get a crack at it. They quote the first part of that statement by Brigham Young that eventually blacks will be able to get the priesthood and omit the part about the timing, i.e. after every white person has had the chance to have the priesthood, and then claim that what Brigham Young predicted was fulfilled by Spencer Kimball in 1978 with the revelation to lift the priesthood ban on blacks, even though they have to avoid the fact that President Kimball lifted the ban way, way too soon, at least if we're going to take Brigham Young seriously and listen to all of his words including the timing of the lifting of the priesthood ban. So once again, back to this piece. Is this why the new essay frames Brigham Young's promise that one day blacks would be permitted the priesthood as being fulfilled by Spencer Kimball's 1978 revelation? Is it why the essay omits from Brigham Young's prediction the condition that blacks would not receive the priesthood until every white man to be born on earth would first have the opportunity? Or as Brigham Young put it, and as quoted in the 1949 First Presidency Statement, by the way, quote, and when all the rest of the children have received their blessings in the holy priesthood, then that curse will be removed from the seed of Cain, and they will then come up and possess the priesthood and receive all the blessings which we now are entitled to, period, end of quote from Brigham Young, as quoted in the 1949 First Presidency Statement. And ultimately, I ask, and ultimately, is this why the new essay's most glaring omission is that of an apology. Implicit in an apology is the acknowledgement that something wrong was done by the church. Not that something wrong was done by Cain, or something wrong was done by the blacks in the pre-mortal existence, or something wrong was done by the white non-Mormons in the culture surrounding Mormonism, or that something wrong was done by the members of the church, but that something wrong was done by the church itself, i.e. the leaders of the church. An acknowledgement that something wrong was done would be tantamount to criticizing church leaders. And as we all know by now, church leaders must not be criticized even if the criticism is true. Does the church's tenet that its leaders must under no circumstances be criticized lie behind the failure of the church to issue an apology for the priesthood ban? And then finally, my conclusion on this piece. My father taught me when I was a boy that it takes a big man to admit when he is wrong. President Monson, who of course was the president of the church at the time, President Monson mentioned last general conference that the LDS church now has over 15 million members. That is pretty big. The question is whether it is big enough. I have been a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for over 35 years. Coincidentally, having been baptized the same month, the Church announced the lifting of the priesthood man. In that time, I have developed a great deal of respect for the leaders of the Church. That respect would not be diminished by a formal and public apology for the priesthood ban, but only enhanced. Why is an apology required? For the sake of black men and women, both in and out of the church, who were told for over a century that they were second-class citizens on earth as they were in heaven. For the sake of the white members of the church, who were taught racial discrimination as part and parcel 
of their religious heritage. And last but not least, for the church itself, which cannot stand approved before God until it has fully repented of this transgression against his children. As the church itself teaches in its gospel principles manual, quote, if we have sinned against another person, we should confess to the person we have injured. Nothing short of an apology will once and for all put the issue of the priesthood ban to rest. Church leaders have seemed surprised that this ghost continues to haunt them. Lifting the ban in 1978 did not put the issue to rest, and neither have the 35 years that have intervened since. Disavowing the teachings behind the ban did not put the issue to rest. Saying we don't know why the ban was instituted and perpetuated did not put the issue to rest. And neither will this new essay put the issue to rest, nor will a hundred such essays. As important a step as this new essay is, and as many church historians as may have contributed to it, all that was ever needed was an apology. An apology is all that will ever be needed, and an apology is all that will ever suffice. My sincere hope is that such an apology will be forthcoming, that it will be accompanied by the signatures of the First Presidency, that it will be announced in General Conference, that it will be publicized by a press release, and that it will be sent to all bishops to be read over the pulpit in all the wards of the church. And finally, that it will be prominently featured on the homepage of the church website. And lastly, my sincere hope is that such an apology will not be another 35 years in the making. So that is the opinion piece that I wrote six years ago in response to the church's essay on race and the priesthood. There are many things that could be said about this essay, but this piece addresses only the issue of why it is that there is no apology for the priesthood ban. Anybody and everybody in this world or out of the world, in the case of God, has been blamed by the church over the course of time for the priesthood ban. There is only one person and one group of people who has not been blamed, and that is the leaders of the church. And they are, in fact, the people who were responsible for instituting the priesthood ban in 1852 under Brigham Young and perpetuating the priesthood ban for over 125 years until it was finally lifted by President Spencer W. Kimball in 1978. I hope you've enjoyed this opinion piece. I wrote a number of such opinion pieces between 2013 and 2015, and if you like this enough, I may share more of those with you in the future. And in case you hadn't noticed, it's been six years since I wrote that opinion piece, soon to be seven years, and we're still waiting for the apology. Well, that's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. And it's getting more and more absurd It's sad, so sad Why can't we talk it over? Oh, it seems to me That siren seems to be the hardest word What do I do to make you love me? Gotta do to be heard. What do I do when lightning strikes me? What have I gotta do? What have I gotta do? 
seems to be the heart. 